we are going to be in our series today. We're in the second to last message in our series, Seeing the Unseen. We've been talking about who Elijah is. And this message is the second to last one. Next week, we're going to see the end of his life and, and learn some from him in that. And it's going to be a cool conclusion to it. This message, though, I, I really feel like it kind of like summarizes a lot of what Elisha did and even what Elijah did. Because Elijah was the predecessor to Elisha. And most people know about Elijah, but we covered him in the fall in our series, Fire from Heaven. And it kind of, I feel like this message summarized both of them. We have a lot to cover. We're covering three chapters today. So I'm going to go kind of quick. So read it on your own at home. Maybe tonight, um, three chapters, we won't be able to get to every single detail. I know some of you wanted me to read every word. I know some of you really wanted to hear every verse this morning. But for the rest of you, I'll be nice. And we're just going to kind of go quickly because we're looking at three different short vignettes. And they all kind of paint a picture of how God interacts with kings because our God is the king of kings. And how does he interact with those in authority? And that's what we're going to see today. Because even if we can't see it, even if it's like, what is God doing with this uh, person in authority, this president, this king? What is he doing? God is working even if we can't see it. It's really what this series is about, seeing the unseen. And when you see how God does that. And I think it's especially important today because we are at a period in our um, history, not only in our nation but around the world, where people really distrust those in authority. They really do. It's one of the the lowest approval ratings. I look at some of the statistics that um, with the media, because they're kind of an authority figure, they bring us the news. Uh, People only have a 42% amount of trust. So only 42% of people actually trust the media. How about the government? Only 28% of people are satisfied with how our country is governed. And only 13% of people approve of Congress. 13%. We really don't trust those in authority, whether it's government or other institutions. And it's not just in our country, it's around the world. There was a big study in the Harvard Business Review, and they found that in Uh, They surveyed a bunch of different countries, people from all over the world. They found that in two-thirds of countries, a majority of people in those countries do not trust those in power. They just don't trust. Whatever the institution is, government, those in authority. And around the world, 71% of government officials are, are thought to be not credible. We don't trust anything that they say. And 63% of people feel the same thing about CEOs. It's not just in the political institutions. It's in business as well. We don't trust people in power. We don't trust authorities. And it's something that's kind of been building for a long time, but we just say that. So, so I'm going to give a civic lesson today so that you can be more patriotic. No, no, no. That's not what we're doing today. We're not going to give you a civic lesson or talk about patriotism for our country. You guys just watched the Olympics, so you all, all got your dose of that. Today, we're going to talk about how do we live in a nation... How do we live in a world where we don't trust those in power? What do we do? How do we handle it? And what I want you to learn today is that we don't have to worry about trusting them. What we need to learn is to trust the king of kings to work through imperfect kings. And when I use that term kings, we are seeing some kings in our stories today. But we're talking about those who are put in positions of authority above us whether they aren't on the national level, our president, vice president, senators, congressmen, or whether on their local level, our mayor, or those in our schools, our our principals, our superintendents, our bosses, our CEOs. We have people in authority above us. But we don't need to worry about that. What we need to learn to do is to trust the king of kings to work through those imperfect kings. So we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 8 today. 
So if you have a Bible, you want to go ahead and jump with me there. We jump into the middle of a story, and we are reintroduced to some people we've seen in our series. So if you're here for the first time, I'll kind of try to catch you up. For the rest of you, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Not really. Uh, But that's okay. We're going to be talking about, in this first story, this first short vignette about a woman that's called in the Bible the Shunammite woman. Do you remember her? She was a woman from Shunem. We're not given her name, but she was a wealthy woman. She was married to an older man, and she was very generous. She supported Elisha. She was one of his main donors and encouraged him so much, gave so much to support him that she said, you know what we want to do? So we want to build onto our house. So she added on to her house so she had room for Elisha to stay whenever he came through town. Very generous donor. And Elisha wanted to thank her, so he and his um, servant Gehazi, they came up with this plan. They said, oh, she needs a son because she was old. Her husband was getting old. They didn't have a son. So Elisha said, oh, you're going to have a son by this time next year. She said, don't get my hopes up. Don't get my hopes up. And then the next year, she had a son. But what happened? The son died. She was angry. She was terrified. But she ran to Elisha and was like, what, what have you done? What have you done? And then Elisha brought that boy back to life. Do you remember that? And we learned through that message that sometimes it's hard to hope but it's hope that gets you through the hardest times. And that's what she needed, and we learned from that. It was a great story. But now we're reintroduced to this woman. She comes back on the scene because she has a need, and she needs someone in the government to help her. So Elisha was friends with this woman, and he told her, he kind of gave her some inside information and said, hey, we're going to have a famine. For seven years in our nation, there's not going to be enough food. So you should get out of the country while you can. So she does. She escapes the country, and she and her family were not told about her husband anymore. And because he was introduced as very old, I think he's probably dead at this point. She's probably a widow. She still has that son. But she has now left the country for seven years, but now she's coming back because the famine is over. And in the Shunammite woman's day, in Elisha's day, there were not those cool doorbells where you could watch a video on Wi-Fi. Right? Some of you have these. I've seen them. They're pretty cool, right? Or, or, or some of you don't have, you know, they didn't have ADT to make sure their home didn't get broken into. No, so she was gone for seven years. And what happened? Someone had taken her house. Someone had taken her land. And it seems, it's kind of implied in this story, that it was either the king who took that land or someone who the king said, oh, that's fine, yeah, take it. So she comes back with nothing. Her land is gone. Her house is gone. How is she going to earn income? Because she needs land to grow crops and sell them. That's her business. So she is going now to the king to plead with him to get her land back. And because it was either the king or one of the king's friends who took the land, this is an uphill battle. This is fighting city hall, right? You don't win when you do that. You don't win. So she's going now to the king. But it just so happens, just so happens that talking to the king, hanging out with him that day, is a man by the name of Gehazi. Gehazi was Elisha's servant, his, his friend, his assistant. Now, I've told you that some of these stories here in this section of the Bible are out of chronological order. I think this one kind of goes back in time because the last time we talked about Gehazi, he had messed up and been very prideful and arrogant and God had given him judgment, so he got leprosy. Do you remember that? But now we're introduced to him and it doesn't say anything about that. And if you had leprosy in that day, you couldn't even be around other people. You were kind of an outcast. So he's talking to the king. So this was either before or he had like repented of his sin and God had healed him. Something had happened. But Gehazi is there talking to the king now. And he's saying, hey, let me tell you about Elisha. 
And this king is enthralled by these stories, just like you guys are, right? Uh, you know, Elisha's stories are pretty incredible. Some of the most amazing stories in the Bible. And Gehazi is telling him, hey, my, my buddy Elisha, he did this miracle, he did that. And then he starts telling about this woman whose son was raised back from the dead. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 8, verse 4. It says, The king was talking to Kazi, the servant of the man of God, and had said, Tell me about all the great things Elisha has done. Just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to appeal to the king for her house and land. Totally a coincidence, right? Uh, we don't believe in coincidences here. It's called providence. God arranged this so that right at that moment, as Gehazi's telling the story, she walks in and the king is like, whoa. So this king who had just taken the land, okay, the government, when they uh, impose imminent domain, they don't give you the land back. They don't. <laughs> and he sees this woman and he says, tell me that story. I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. And she tells. He, I'm sure he was like, was the boy really dead or was he just sleeping? Was it resuscitation? And she's like, no, 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 it was resurrection. He was dead for a couple days. Came back from the dead. Whoa, that's incredible. And the king is so moved by this story that he says, okay, you can have your land back. Plus, it's been seven years, you couldn't work the land. I'm going to take all the income from that land and I'm going to give it to you. As if you had worked for seven years. Plus, I'm going to put one of my trusted assistants on your case to make sure that this happens. I mean, this is amazing. The kings don't do this, especially in this day and age. They take land, they keep it. But this king is moved by it just happening, this story, right? Right at the right time. I see, and I hope that you see in this story, that God works events like that. He works circumstances, even with people in authority, even kings, and we're not told much about which king this is. But he is so moved that his heart goes out and he wants to show favor to this woman. And that's how God sometimes works behind the scenes, even with those imperfect kings. We read in Proverbs um, chapter 21, verse 1. A king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hands. He directs it wherever he chooses. They think they're in charge, but God's in charge. God is working the situation, working the heart, and leading this king to make this generous, favorable offer. You know, I've seen this happen, not with a king. I'm still waiting for that chance to talk to a king, and it hasn't happened yet. But I was actually on a mission trip to Ukraine. And my parents, um, my dad worked for an organization for a long time going over to Eastern Europe. And he still goes over every summer, he and my mom. And he took a team, and it was my second time going over there. And I was in college, so I invited some of my friends, and I was leading these friends, and we were going over there. And we got there, and our job, what we were going to do that week in Ukraine, was teach English in the public school system. And we were going to share the gospel through that. And we had done this before. We'd had other teams do it before. And we used the Bible and shared about Jesus, teaching them English. And kids loved it because they wanted that chance. And it was this great mission opportunity. Well, that year, a law had been passed, making that illegal. Making it so no Christians, no religious organizations could come into the public schools. And we found out about it when we got there Sunday night. And we were supposed to start the next morning. So what are we going to do? There was a local superintendent who was adamant that we couldn't come in. He said, no, no more. You can't do this. You can't use the Bible. No Christian organizations, no religious organizations at all in our school. And now we're there. What are we going to do for a week? Are we just go on vacation? You know, eat some borscht? Okay, we, we wanted to get in there. 
So my parents went to go talk to this superintendent, and I was there with my, my team, and I said, okay, let's just pray. Let's pray that God would give us favor with this person in authority. So we were praying and praying and praying, and my parents come back, and they look like dumbfounded. They're like, well, we're going starting tomorrow morning. We're like, okay, great, great. And they said it was so weird. They were there with our friend, a translator, and they got into the office, and from the first moment, the superintendent was yelling at them in Ukrainian, just yelling, 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 angry, furious, pointing fingers at them, and they were just kind of sitting there waiting for an opportunity to talk. And then at the very end of his tirade, he said, okay, you can start tomorrow. (laughs) They were confused. They had no idea what he was saying. Our translator was confused, even though she knew what he was saying. What happened? But God had somehow worked in his heart that he gave us favor, and we were able to go in there and share the gospel with those kids in that town. And I, I was like, this is amazing, you know? This is an answer to prayer that God has moved this authority for your heart. And that's what God can do. He can work in these imperfect kings, these imperfect authorities, to get good things to happen. Even bad kings do good things sometimes. And, and this is what we see in this first story. And if that happened every time, that would be awesome, right? If every missionary had a great time in, in foreign nations and they got to do whatever they wanted, if, if the government never did anything wrong, taking stuff from widows and, and hurting those who were uh, poor, if that didn't happen, that would be awesome. But that doesn't happen, does it? Sometimes those bad things happen. Sometimes the kings and those in power don't do what they're supposed to. And God, even in that, is working. And that's what we're going to see in this next section. So I have this map up here. And we're going to look at three different nations in this story, in this message today. We've been introduced to Israel, which is the northern nation of God's people. Judah is the southern nation. They were united under David and Solomon, and then they had a civil war, and they were never united again. Samaria is the capital of Israel, Jerusalem the capital of Judah. So we're going to come back to Judah in just a little bit. But Israel and Aram have been fighting back and forth. We've seen wars going on. We've seen times of peace. We've seen Naaman, one of the generals from Aram, like humble himself before God and become healed in an incredible story. So there's been all sorts of stories back and forth. But now God is sending Elisha to Aram. So maybe this is a time of peace, but it's actually just before a big war. And Elisha is in Aram, which is modern-day Syria. And he is hanging out, and the king finds out about it. And once again, it just so happens that the king is sick right then. He's really sick. He's doing poorly. He's ill. So he sends his servant, a guy by the name of Hazael, to go to Elisha to see if he can get better. They want to find out, will the prophet, what will the prophet say? Will, will God say, I can be healed and get better? Even though he, he doesn't even believe in God. These are Arameans. They had a different God. The guy's name is Ben-Hadad, meaning son of Hadad, the god of Aram. He didn't believe God, but he wanted to know, am I going to get healed? So he sends Hazael, his servant, maybe one of the the top officials, with 40 camels, with goods and money and all sorts of stuff. And Elisha, as we've seen, he doesn't care about money. But he still says, okay, I'll talk to you. And Hazael asks him, he says, okay, is my master, the king, is he going to get well? Is he going to be healed? And Elisha says this. Elisha answered, go and say to him, you will certainly recover. Nevertheless, the Lord has revealed to me that he will, in fact, die. (laughs) You should be saying, what? That's bizarre. Elisha says, yeah, this sickness isn't going to kill you, but you're still going to die. 
And then it gets even more bizarre in the story because Elisha just stares at Hazael. Just locked eyes on him and won't move. It's like a staring contest and Hazael's like, what's going on? He, it says he's embarrassed. Why are you just keep looking at me? I, I knew believers in God were weird, but man, this is really weird. And, and then Elisha begins to cry. Tears start coming down his face. He's weeping, it says. And Hazael is dumbfounded. What is going on here? So he asks, he says, why is my Lord weeping? Asked Hazael. Because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites, he answered. He could picture what Hazael was going to do to kill and to destroy his own countrymen. And Hazael said, how could your servant, a mere dog, accomplish such a feat? I'm a servant to the king. The Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram, answered Elisha. I, I, I point out the story, I think it's so interesting because Elisha is now playing kingmaker at the direction of God. He tells this man, you are going to become king, you're a servant. And I think this probably may have put this idea in his head, but, or maybe it just you know, took something that was already in Hazael's head and brought it to the surface. But he goes back to the king and the king says, will I get better, will I get better? Hazael says, of course you will. Elisha said you'll get better. And then that night, gets a real thick cloth, dumps it in some water, and puts it over the king's face and suffocates him to death. And he becomes king. Ooh. He has now taken power. He's committed regicide, killing a king. This is treason, right? But he has now taken power through murder, through an assassination, really. He's taking power. And, and it seemed like God's word through the prophet Elisha led him to do this. And it wasn't that God is saying that's a good thing, but God just knew that was going to happen. And you may be thinking, well, why is God doing this here? This is a foreign nation, but God even works in foreign nations. He works in foreign evil kings, people that don't acknowledge God. God brings certain people in authority to power and takes others out of power, as we've seen here. In Job... We read, <clears throat> we have that verse from Job. <laughs> it's because it's in Daniel. Good catch, Kevin. I was just making sure he was paying attention. <laughs> Daniel 2.21, we read, um, <laughs> do we have that one? Hey, all right. Daniel 2.20, God removes some kings from power. He causes other kings to rule. That's what God does. He has that power. He brings certain people into positions of authority. Others doesn't. And he even works with evil kings from foreign nations. In Isaiah chapter 45, we're introduced to a guy named Cyrus. And he was actually king of Persia, another nation that would come in and kill a bunch of people and take over and, and enslave people. A pretty awful king, right? But it says this. This is what the Lord says to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold to subdue nations before him. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. God even works through kings that don't acknowledge him, don't think he exists, or don't worship him. God works through those authorities that are even evil. And do you know what God was doing here? He was going to punish Israel. Because Israel was not following God. So he was going to use a foreign nation now to bring judgment. And you may remember way back in October, we looked at Elijah 
And Elijah was there at the time of Ahab, one of the kings of Israel, and it was it said that he was one of the worst kings Israel had ever seen. Terrible guy, and he married this woman named Jezebel from another nation, and Jezebel was the worst queen ever. And she led all of God's people into worship of Baal, a false god, and she killed anyone who worshipped the one true God. And at this time, Elijah Elijah thought he was alone, but really there were 7,000 people. So we were introduced to this story. Even though Elijah had called down fire from heaven to Ahab, Ahab didn't believe. And then, at the behest of Jezebel, sent someone to assassinate and kill the prophet. So Elijah is running out into the desert on his own. He's terrified, he's scared, and he becomes sad and depressed. He even gets to the point, he says, I don't even know why I want to live. He's suicidal. And that's when God speaks to him in a still, small voice. Do you remember the story? Um, and God speaks to him, and he tells him something. He, he tells him about three guys in that story. He says, hey, there's going to be three guys that are coming. The first one we've already met was Elisha. He said, I'm going to give you this guy, Elisha, to be your friend, to hang out with you. Even though you feel like alone, you're going to have a friend. And we've seen Elisha. He's been this great guy that took the mantle from Elijah. But he says, there's two other guys. There's a guy, and, and we see this in 1 Kings 19, um, verse 15. The Lord said to Elijah, Go to the desert of Damascus, that's Aram. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. This is probably 30, maybe 50 years before it actually happened. God told Elijah, I'm going to send this Hazael to punish my people, to punish Ahab for what he's done, to punish Jezebel for all the things that they have done. That's what God does. He works through kings, even evil kings. So he sends that. So I point that out because a lot of times we say things like, you know, we don't like certain government officials. You know, maybe you're Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, don't care, you know, whatever it is, but we don't like someone in power, right? We say, that's not my president. But it's God's president. God put that person in authority, whether we like him or not. Whether it's a foreign king that we hate, God puts those people in power, doesn't he? And he uses them. He works through them. And in this case, he's using them to bring a time of punishment on Israel. It may not be the best truth that we want to hear, but it's true. It's true, and I've got to tell you guys about it. So I want to go back to this map. I want to go back to this map, because we've seen Israel and Judah. And so far, we haven't really talked about Judah, because Elisha did all of his ministry, really, in Israel. But now... There's two kings of Judah who marry the daughters of the king of Israel. And they do that probably as a political alliance. But those daughters were descendants of Ahab and Jezebel. So now the kings in Judah are becoming evil and killing people who worship God. And they're leading people astray into worship in Baal. So now both of God's people, both nations, are going astray. So things are very bad. And that's, of course, because and why God brought Hazael into power in Aram. So now these nations are all going to go to war. So that's what we're introduced to next. I have another map here. So even though these two nations are separated, they become allies. And King Joram of Israel and King Ahaziah of of, of Judah are going to Ramoth Gilead, which is on the eastern portion of Israel. And they are fighting King Hazael from Aram. Many Israelites, many uh, Judites, I hope I said that right, Judahites and Israelites are fighting in the Gileadites and the Aramites. Okay, you know what I'm talking about, right? They're at this war. This is a lot to keep track of in this message, isn't there? You paying attention? Good. 
So they're fighting here in Ramoth Gilead, a lot of fighting, a lot of war. And what happens is Joram, king of Israel, gets injured very badly. He's wounded in the middle of a fight. So if we see in the next slide that he exits, he goes west to a town in Jezreel, back over the Jordan River where he feels like he'll be safe. So he's there off away from the front lines of the battle so he can recover. Well, Ahaziah, as we see in the next slide, also leaves the battlefront and goes to Jezreel. So now the king of Israel and the king of Judah are in one place. These are the two evil kings who are leading evil nations away from God. And they're both sitting ducks. Because Elisha comes on the scene once again, as he does in these situations. And Elisha, for some reason, we're not told why, he sends another one of his servants to go to Ramoth Gilead. And he says, I want you to go find a guy by the name of Jehu. Jehu is one of the generals of Israel. And I want you to anoint him as king. There's already a king, Joram. He's injured, but he's still alive. And he says, I want you to anoint this king. So this servant runs in there, up to the battlefront where the generals are meeting. And he says, I got a message for you. And they're like, okay, tell us. And he's like, no, 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 no. I think I got to do this in private. So then he takes Jehu in private and it says this in um, chapter, I think we're nine, verse six. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. And God says this, I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all of the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel and her descendants. And then it goes on to say, the whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel. As for Jezebel, this is really nice, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel and no one will bury her. This is the plot of land that she and Ahab stole from Naboth. Killed him to take that land. So God is saying, Jehu, you are now going to be used by God to bring punishment on these evil kings and end their dynasty. Jehu is a general, and he walks out, talks to his troops, and they say, they bow down to him and declare him king. So even though they're still in this battlefront in Ramoth Gilead, if we look at the next map, he leaves the battlefront too, and he heads to Jezreel where both those kings are sitting. He rides his chariot up, and he's riding really fast. It says he was driving crazy, like some of you men out here. And Joram can recognize his chariot driving by how crazy he's driving. And Joram sees him and says, what's going on? So he and Ahaziah go out in their chariots to meet Jehu on the road. And right where they meet Naboth's vineyard, that land that Joram's grandfather had stolen. They meet there, and and it becomes very apparent very quickly that Jehu is not there to say hi. (laughs) Joram realizes it and turns his chariot around and yells at Ahaziah, Get out of here! Run! Retreat! But it's not in time, because Jehu pulls his bow, shoots an arrow, and it goes right through Joram's, right between the shoulder blades, into his heart, and kills him immediately. And then he falls out, and they throw him into that field. Naboth's vineyard. (laughs) And then they chase down Ahaziah as well and murder him. Both kings have now been killed. Jehu continues on into Jezreel, and guess who's there? Jezebel. She's still alive. She's probably a much older lady at this time. But it says, I think it's so interesting, these details. It says that she had her makeup on and her hair done. 
I think it points it out because even at that last moment, she is defiant. And she looks down at Joram as he's coming up from her window, and she calls him a murderer. What are you doing here, you murderer? So Jehu says, if anybody's on my side, help me. And a few of her, of Jezebel's attendants, take her, throw her out the window. She falls on the ground, and I know this is a little graphic, but she bleeds everywhere. It says her blood splatters all over the walls and the ground. And then Jehu and his horses and their men, they go on their horses and trample on her body and get even more blood everywhere. You weren't expecting that this morning, were you? That's in the Bible. Kind of bloody. And then they go into the city, into Jezreel, and Jehu sends a messenger down to Samaria. He says, if anybody's on my side, you're going to help me out. And the people there are saying, okay. And they find 70 of the sons and descendants of the king of Israel. And he must have had a lot of wives or something. 70 of these descendants. They line them all up, chop off their heads. Put them in bags, send them to Jezreel. So Jehu takes them, puts them in two big piles and gives a speech basically to rally the nation to him. And then it says he goes down to Samaria again. And it says this in this next verse. It says, when Jehu came to Samaria, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Killed everyone who's related to Ahab or Joram. Kills them all. And then he says, hmm, now let's round up everyone who worshipped Baal. So he says, we're going to throw a big celebration. We're going to have a big party. Anybody who worshipped Baal, if you worship the, the one true God, Yahweh, don't come. But everybody else comes. Tons of people come. All the priests. And they show up in the temple. And he orders his men to go in and kill them all. Everyone who worshipped Baal is killed that day. And then they throw all the stones of the temple down on the ground. And it says that it became the latrine. Meaning these people now defecated on the temple of Baal. If you're thinking this is disgusting and gross, there's a lot of bodily fluids in this section, you're right. This is a bloody affair. This is uh, graphic. This is crazy. But sometimes that's how it happens. God is working in history even in those times where things seem, things seem pretty bad. And if you're saying things are bad right now in America, maybe this will show up. Well, <laughs> it could get worse. <laughs> they could get much worse. But even in this situation, God is at work. He sent Jehu to do this. He used Jehu to bring an end to Baal worship, to kill all of these people of that family, end a dynasty, and start as the new king. Now, I was pondering this because I was thinking, man, this is a little brutal. It's a little tough, isn't it? Why didn't God just send in like an assassin to kill those two bad kings? Couldn't that have ended things? But then I remembered... Another time in history where there was an assassination and it started one of the biggest world wars that the world has ever seen. 16 million people died. 30, uh, 23 nations were involved and it was World War I. Started with an assassination. Did you know that? Sometimes it, we think, why, why can't you do it a little more surgical, God? Why can't you just make it a little cleaner? Why can't you just make things happen on a nicer way? But God knows better. He knows what it's going to take, even if it is bloody, even if it is messy, even if it's not the way we think we would do it. But God did it to bring his nation back into alignment with himself. And all of this, God was at work. God was at work. You know, it's, it's amazing like that. Have you guys ever met somebody who's like a master musician or a master artist? 
What I love about these people, with the best musicians, they usually have the best equipment, but even if you give them like a child's guitar, like they can play like beautiful melodies on it. You're like, whoa, make it sound so good. The artist who, who can just, I, I remember my sister-in-law's an artist and we were like writing on, on the whiteboard and playing with the kids and she drew this like masterpiece with the, the markers, the dry erase markers. Like that's just cheap stuff, right? But the people that are experts can take stuff that's bad and make it really good. And that's what God does. He uses imperfect means. He uses people who are sinners, who are, do some awful things. Kings, authority, imperfect kings. And he uses them to bring about his mean, his will. And that's what God did in these stories. Now, I think this is so important for us because it's very easy for us as Americans, and some of you aren't Americans, but I'm talking to just the Americans right now. For the rest of you, apply it to your own nation of origin. We as Americans often conflate God's kingdom with our own nation. And when things aren't going well, we think, what is God doing? We want this person in power. We vote for this president. We want this senator there. We want this mayor in charge. And, and when it doesn't happen, we get angry. And we confuse God's kingdom with the earthly kingdom. Now, God is at work in all of those authorities. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, we read this. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. It says it twice in case you forget the first time. In case you don't get it. God puts all those authorities in place even if we don't like them. Even if we say, that's not my president. God puts those people in place and uses them. But I don't want us to get the two mixed up. That doesn't mean it's God's kingdom. It doesn't mean the king of kings is now on the throne in America. It doesn't. I've read a lot of the stuff about Billy Graham over the last few weeks. Maybe some of you have as well. I mean, he passed away, of course, and I really respect him. I'm a pastor and he was a pastor. He's often called America's pastor. Have you heard that term for Billy Graham? Did you know that he had a relationship with every president from Truman on to even Trump? He had interactions with them. I'm still waiting for my call from the mayor, you know. He talked with all these presidents. He met with them, did Bible studies with them, prayed with them. But he was the closest to one president. Does anybody know who that was? Nixon. Ooh. Yeah, and I was interested. I read about this. I didn't really know about that relationship. He was good friends with Nixon. He was often meeting with him in his cabinet, praying with them, talking to them, doing Bible studies with them. And then, of course, Watergate happened. Scandal that Nixon definitely uh, knew about. And as the Watergate tapes came out, Billy Graham was on some of them. And Billy Graham had to apologize because when Nixon and his cabinet were saying some awful things, including some very anti-Semitic remarks, he just sat there and didn't do anything about it. He had to apologize to a lot of the Jewish community and Jewish leaders. And he wrote an article in Christianity Today um, years ago about this experience. And this is what he said. I came close to identifying the American way of life with the kingdom of God. Then I realized that God had called me to a higher kingdom than America. We often mistake these things. But let me tell you, whoever is in authority, I don't care what party you're in or what party you hate, God is at work. But it's not the kingdom. It's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. It's working. God is there and it's growing. There are people around the world that are coming to know Jesus and the kingdom of God is expanding. But it's not here yet. 
in full. We're still waiting for that to happen. So I don't want you to confuse the two. And, and, and parents, th- those of you, let's not confuse the par- political parties or even being an American with being a Christian. Because if we're believers here, we belong to a higher nation. We are citizens of the United States, yes, but we are also citizens of the kingdom of God. We can't forget that. And what's even more amazing than this is that we have the band come up, is, is that in chapter 10, verse 30 of our passage, we're taught about Jehu. He was, he was the person God chose, God prophesied, God led him to do all those things. And this is what God says. The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, you did what you're supposed to, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation, a blessing. Yet, Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He had his imperfections. He sinned. He did some bad things. I think he maybe even went a little too far in how bloody things got. But that's what happens with earthly kings, right? Earthly authorities. We're still waiting for the perfect king. Once you find the perfect president, we're never going to find that person, right? We're waiting for it. We're looking for it. And I think all of these stories in the Bible, all the kings, even human history is all pointing forward to the one true king. I love it because there was only one king who actually was fully righteous and fully obeyed God with all his heart. And it was a king that didn't use violence to take power. It wasn't a king who um, killed people. He didn't have to be forced or manipulated to help people. He did it because he loved them. And the only blood that he shed was his own. And that's the king of kings. So what we're going to do today, we're closing with some worship because he is our king and he's reigning in heaven. After he died on the cross, he rose from the dead and he ascended in heaven where he is ruling right now. And we're waiting for him to come back. It's not today, but someday he'll come back and we'll establish that kingdom here. And that's why we worship him as the king of kings. So I want you guys to all get up on your feet. We're going to stand and we're going to play praise the one true king, the only king forever. Amen.